This episode is brought to you in part by the following Government of Canada partners. Natural Products Canada, the driving force behind Canada's natural product innovation cluster through support, guidance, introductions, programs, and investment. Hi, I'm Brett, and this is Aditi. And this is Full Stack Food, a show about food and innovation. And favorite snack foods. Ooh, that's a great way to begin our show. What are your favorite snack foods? There's been none of them in the last 20 years we talked about last week. No favorite snack foods in the last 20 years is what we decided and determined. Prove me wrong. I am not going to try to prove you wrong because you're right. Yep, (laughs) that's correct. I am always right. Sure. Steph's rolling her eyes there. (laughs) Well, today we're chatting with Adam Maxwell and Kelsey Tenney of Voyage Foods, a company making replacements for some of our favorite food items. The two of them met while working together at a food startup and discovered they both loved nerding out on all things food science. Brett, they were so much fun to chat with. Yeah, I love that when founders meet that way, right? They're working somewhere. They find like a mutual interest that is it also an area of interest for like innovation or opportunity for innovation? And they go off and do their own thing. It's such a cool, powerful way for a team to come together. Exactly. And they have such complementary strengths and 180 degree difference in personality types, but that's what makes it work so well. And they collaborate so well together. And that brings us to the question of this episode. Can you make good chocolate without cocoa and coffee without beans? Adam and Kelsey sure think so. And those are some of the projects they're working on at Voyage. I'm curious about the chocolate part. I've actually recently talked to a startup that is taking used coffee grounds to make cocoa powder out of them. And so it's like kind of combining these two things in like a weird, weird way. I think in both of these spaces, the fear, kind of like we talked about snow crabs last week, the fear is that environmental changes are making it much more difficult and expensive to grow these crops. And so there's really no choice. It's like we're either not going to be able to supply the global cocoa powder consumption, or we need to find an alternative that works for it. Yeah. And that was exactly the premise of them founding this company. So we'll look forward to hearing more about that. But first, let's take a look at some of the hot topics trending in food and innovation. Wegmans ended its use of its scan and go shopping app that allowed customers to scan grocery items as they picked them off shelves, saving them time and hassle at long checkout lines. The retailer says it has to end the program because it was experiencing too many losses. Guys, A lot of customers who use this app were really disappointed. I can imagine why. Do you think ultimately this will roll out again? I mean, I think it has to, right, for these places to innovate? I do think that this app will come back if only because society as a whole is moving towards using apps, using self-guided mobile things across different shopping experiences. And so it will become expected and users will be more used to it and maybe there won't be as many losses. There'll also be better like opportunities to track when there is losses and technology be better to enforce when people steal. When we say losses, that probably just means people are stealing food and not checking out themselves. And so there'll be better ways for stores to monitor and manage that. Potentially controversial topic here. I believe that the public sub is far superior to any of the Wegman subs, like far superior. And people like always claim that Wegmans have great subs. Pub subs are amazing. Pub subs dominate Wegmans. I've had both. 
So I love Wegmans. I can be a brand evangelizer for them. However, I have never had their subs, so I cannot engage in that conversation. I've never been to a Publix either. If you ever go to Publix, get a sub. The chicken tender sub at Publix is basically untouchable by any other sub on the planet. You had me at chicken tenders. Yum. Chicken tender subs, delicious. And to your point, if there's a problem to be had, no doubt there's an entrepreneur who's going to be solving for that. So I'm sure this is not the last we've seen of Scan and Go. Well, next, Shake Shack founder Danny Meyer just invested $10 million into New York-based Chip City. This is a New York-based cookie and coffee chain that provides nostalgic gourmet sweet treats. It was launched by two childhood friends five years ago and is expected to expand nationally with more than 20 new retail stores next year. Guys, cookies and coffee. How did someone not come up with this idea before? I think the beauty of it is in the simplicity, right? I mean, from my understanding, it is cookies and coffee. And that's pretty much what you get, which I think is it's not necessarily that innovative, but is wonderful and sounds like a great place to go. It sounds like a big, warm hug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> restaurants are hard. So I bet people have tried this before, but restaurants in general, there's so many other things that kill restaurants and it's usually not the concept. All the other stuff kills restaurants and restaurant night isn't. So that's what I'd imagine is actually the case. I have no expertise in cookie and coffee chains that have been started and failed or still exist out in the world, but that's my guess. Well, speaking of novel concepts, McDonald's new adult Happy Meals are such a success. They have sparked a flurry in resale markets. Flurry. Yes. The fast food chain collaborated with Cactus Plant Flea Market, a streetwear brand popularized by celebrities like Travis Scott and Pharrell, in creating the limited edition Happy Meals. The adult version comes with toys, and you guessed it, those toys have now touched off fierce bidding wars online. One seller listed a trio of unopened toys. Grimacy, the Hamburglar, and Birdie for $300,000, despite the bold offer that item did not receive any bids. Shocker. But in another one that included 150 sealed toys sold for $2,400, more than a dozen 150-count cases have also sold for nearly $2,000. Is this surprising or not? I mean, Steph's the one that bought that $2,400 case. So, I mean, I'm surprised. I imagine it's not surprising her. Gotta have Grimace. You do. <laughs> How much did you pay for Grimace? You know, just a startup investment, traded equity. <laughs> Steph is being very tight-lipped on that. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yes. This is going to go the way of like Beanie Babies or whatever, where people pay a bunch of money and then they're worthless in the future. That's my guess. My bold prediction of this. Well, coming up, Adam Maxwell and Kelsey Tenney on whether or not you can make good chocolate without cocoa. Adam Maxwell and Kelsey Tenney are almost polar opposites. What makes them such a formidable pair of co-founders is the one thing they do have in common. They are both downright obsessed with the science behind food. That mind meld led the pair to launch Voyage Foods, which makes your favorite staples with alternative ingredients to produce food more sustainably. For instance, the Oakland-based company just came out with peanut butter without the peanuts, and they're also working on making chocolate without cocoa and coffee without beans. They've already had a huge win. They launched their peanut butter late last year, and it's available at grocery stores like Sprouts and Fairway. Kelsey and Adam's partnership began across the country on the East Coast. He had worked in fine dining, and she had a sweet tooth. Together, they believe they can replace ingredients that are becoming increasingly scarce in the world. With her capacity,
capacity to solve hard problems and his big vision and counterculture attitude that arose from his Boston childhood. I grew up in Cambridge, Mass, equidistant between MIT and Harvard, which, you know, is a interesting place to grow up, right? Yeah, a very non-standard place, you know, parents, classic academics in that kind of area. And I was a kid who couldn't really read, got taken out of regular school to go to school for kids with relatively severe kind of learning disabilities, always obsessed with food, got KitchenAid stand mixer for my bar mitzvah, started working at high-end restaurants at 14. But yeah, I was a countercultural kind of fuck the world kind of kid because the school system was told me I was stupid at a young age. I kind of had this assumption that, you know, either they're wrong or I'm wrong. And I decided that they were wrong. So I think, you know, that kind of is codified in what I'm doing now in a lot of ways. But yeah, I was a kind of countercultural, anti-systems child, super obsessed with food and science. You know, I, I cooked throughout high school professionally while also kind of working at the Harvard Center for Astrophysics doing, you know, first degree research, you know, primary author type stuff and astrophysical modeling. But yeah, I was massive nerd and loved food and a little bit of a counterculturalist. And looking, you know, two decades later, it's nothing has really changed. And to add to the legend, what did your parents do? My mom was a gerontologist and my dad was an environmental economist. And one taught at Harvard and one taught at MIT. Is that correct? Yeah. And I dropped out of college, so they have like, uh, you know, obviously uh, mixed feelings about that, given that they're both academics and professors. But you can clearly see those entrepreneurial seeds were well planted in you in childhood when you talk about kind of having this chip on your shoulder and not taking the status quo and just having that independent spirit growing up. Yeah, absolutely. At 12, kind of all the adults in my life said I was either going to be in jail or a CEO of like a decent sized company by the time I was 30. And one of those came true. I'm really happy it was the positive one and not the negative <laughs> one, obviously. But yeah, I think kind of a lot of that was baked in from a young age. And Kelsey, tell us a little bit about your childhood and what brought you here. Well, I, in some ways, am very different from Adam, in some ways similar. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Minnesota. I was a bit of a type A personality in high school. I got really scared when I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. I just knew that I was quite proficient at school subjects, as they teach you to be when you're younger. And one of those was math and science. But whenever I thought about what I was most passionate about, baking and cooking came to the forefront. And I had thought about going to culinary school. And then my mom, she worked at IBM, and she has always been a big proponent of keeping women in math and science if they're good there. So she found a video from Cargill, which is a big ingredient manufacturer in Minnesota. It was all about what a food scientist does. And, you know, I job shadowed, fell in love with it, went to college for food science, just like Adam here. But what I had noticed after I got you know, a bit into the program is that the traditional school methods had taught me to be very proficient at everything, but I wasn't extremely good at thinking for myself and really thinking through scientific problems. So I actually went to grad school for food science where I learned those traits, something that Adam sort of inherently learned, I think, through his experiences. But that ultimately led me to have some of 
the same thoughts that Adam has about why does it have to be done a certain way, that countercultural thing. So it's interesting. We sort of ended up in very similar places, but had very different ways of getting there. And I love how you guys have these contrasting threads of your personality types and everything. But there is this incredible nexus point with your love for all things food and baking and cooking from just a really early age. Adam, tell us a little bit about where that culinary journey in high school years, you know, as a teenager, how that showed itself in your life as you went to college and beyond. Yeah, there are a million ways to answer that question. Food has a power to bring people together and evoke visceral experiences like no other art form in the world, right? And that's kind of how I got the fine dining bug. Like at a restaurant, I I was 12, 13 years old for my sister's birthday and just had this out-of-body experience at a restaurant and emailed the chef of like, can I, you know, be a pastry apprentice this summer? And they're like, we don't care. We're not going to pay you because you can't legally work yet because you're too young. But, you know, sounds great. And you know, if you look into, you know, the modern school system, which I have fundamentally, you know, no real respect for, there's just no shred of the passion of high-end dining, right? Like, I learned how to work hard. I learned what caring for people was. I learned what work ethic was, what discipline was, what giving a shit really was from restaurants, right? You know, in college and in high school, you know, like, no one really cared, right? Like, like people were driven, people like wanted to get into good colleges and like, all these extrinsic motivators, but like when you're in high-end dining, right? Like people are there to bring joy to the world and make perfect food. And I think my dad will, you know, time and time again, be like, you would have been the laziest profanity, profanity, profanity if you'd never worked in restaurants because you really just, you know, fundamentally had no work ethic or didn't care about anything until you did that. So I think it was really formative in uh, how to approach the world in a really fundamental level of like, the way you show up fundamentally matters. And, you know, you can do work, good work, or you can do bad work. And that's really fundamentally a reflection on yourself. And what restaurant was this, by the way? I'm just curious. I mostly was at Clio in Boston, which doesn't exist anymore, but was, you know, James Beard Award winning and all the other kind of accolades. And it seems like you got such an education there. Kelsey mentioned that you went to college. Tell us a little bit about Continuing that formal education, which you were so skeptical about, and what you studied and where that took you. Yeah, I studied food science, food chemistry in college, university. My department didn't necessarily love me. And where was this? Which college? At McGill University in Montreal. And like, kind of in contrast to the American college system, or like especially the liberal arts college system, right? It's 60,000 kids. Like, they don't care if you pass. But yeah, I think they all kind of thought I was stupid. But I, it was really nice to have not even accessible information, but just in a place where I could kind of learn on my own because I had so much free time, right? You know, I made a rule to myself that I wasn't early in university, that I wasn't going to do any schoolwork I didn't think had value after school. So like, obviously, my grades were couldn't have been worse, ended up dropping out right before I have a few classes left or something like that. But yeah, I do think it was really useful to have some of that formal hard science because, you know, it's, it's hard to take that initiative in, on your own in some way, veins. And, you know, I definitely didn't have a great college experience. I think I got kicked out my first year for bad grades. My second year, I think I might have also gotten kicked out for bad grades. I stayed five years and, and didn't graduate. How many times can you get kicked out for bad grades before they stop letting you back? I have no idea. And 
the most comedic part is I got there with over a year's worth of college credits from courses I'd taken at Harvard. All the astrophysics first author stuff you've done somehow didn't count? Like, Yeah, no, totally. Aditi, how many times have you been kicked out of school for bad grades? Zero. But you know what? I didn't first author astrophysics papers and work at Michelin-starred restaurants when I was 13. I delivered pizzas. <laughs> so, Kelsey, you and Adam made it through, well, he didn't necessarily made it through college to graduate, but, you know, somehow muddled through and just made it past your formal education part. What came next for you? Well, after grad school, I had a quite a strong appreciation, I'll say, for the confectionery side of food science. So partially that's because I was definitely a sugar fiend, was always afraid deep down inside that I would get type 2 diabetes, but I just love sugar so much and the science of chocolate is really fascinating. So I went into private label confectionery manufacturing on Long Island, which was a very good learning experience for me. I was their only food scientist, had a lot of hands-on, got a lot of experience in their manufacturing. And then after that, I really wanted something a bit more creative and on a larger scale. So I went to Chu in Boston, which is a food consultancy firm. And that's where I met Adam. I was taking over his spot on the confectionery team there when he was moving over to a different, more like out of the box project style team. And yeah, from there, we became really good friends and really nerded out together on sciencey food things and also the fine dining aspect and all of the random food facts in between after that. And Adam, tell us a little bit about what happened with you after school that led you to chew. Yeah, between my fourth and fifth years at university, interned there. And I was, you know, one of the earliest employees there. And for a multitude of reasons, I didn't go back to school. But I think one of the really primary ones was Chew. Tell us a little bit about Chew. What did Chew do? What did you guys do there? Yeah, so it it was a food R&D consultancy, mostly working with, you know, Fortune 500 companies at the time. It was really early stage the kind of vision and mission in a lot of ways is very similar to voyages, right? You know, they were trying to make more environmentally sustainable and more healthy food. And it was early stage. They had a ton of huge customers and clients. And, you know, I was young and hungry. And I think, you know, the company has done great things. But when I got there, they didn't really have any people really strong in the kind of science and technology space in food. So it just seemed like a really exciting place where I could get to travel the world and see manufacturing plants of some of the biggest food companies in the world and really move the needle. If you want to elicit change in any industry, right, how do you do it? It's to work with the biggest food companies in the world. So it was a really exciting time, really exciting space and profoundly interesting. But I think, you know, Kelsey and I both realized that there was a piece of skin in the game that you're lacking on the consultancy side. Building something and facilitating someone building something are fundamentally different when you go to sleep every night. And it seemed like it gave you this incredible opportunity to learn and obviously to connect with a kindred spirit that you guys had found in each other with your passion for food and fine dining and kind of laid that foundation for you to then move on to found Voyage, right? Yeah, well, we both had a pit stop in between. Mine slightly longer than Kelsey's. Uh, ended up going to Alpha Beverage Technology Company called Endless West right after Chew. We made wine without grapes, award-winning wine without grapes. We made incredible whiskey without aging and really kind of reinvented a lot of things in the Alpha Bev space in a way that really no one ever had before. You know, 
it's biblical, right? I'm a religious Jew, but like we were doing biblical things, right? We were turning water into wine and not just wine, but award-winning wine, right? I got there and I think two or three months in, I'm like, Kelsey, you have to come. And she had just gone to another company and then it basically took me eight months of wearing Kelsey down into <laughs> coming to move out west. Kelsey, how did he convince you to come over? That's a good question. I think it was just, you know, really seeing him all in over a longer period of time than just initial excitement because moving from Boston to San Francisco is no small feat, especially for a relatively early stage startup. So, yeah, I think it was really the consistency of his enthusiasm which brought me over. Plus the wine without grapes, I would think, also helped <laughs> pull you over. That's correct. Yeah, the bar at Endless West is definitely a great perk. <laughs> I can imagine. What finally propelled you guys to start your own thing? Yeah, Kelsey and I are both big chocolate dorks. When I met Kelsey, she ate chocolate chip cookies a few nights a week. <laughs> and, and it's funny because I don't really like sweets in any form, but have always <laughs> loved chocolate and its applications from like a culinary and scientific perspective. You know, it's one of the most complex food products in the world. So we kind of behind the scenes were working on what does this look like, right? We both had experience working in big chocolate and, you know, we're hyper aware of the fact that, you know, this stuff's going away. Where we are now and what we're doing now, we didn't have any idea that any of this was going to be a thing. We were just like, well, like maybe fake chocolate stuff eventually, right? You know, cacao-free chocolate stuff eventually because the world needs it. And when you're saying this stuff is going away, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so if you look at arable growing regions for things like chocolate and coffee, Global warming is real. Sorry for any of your podcast listeners who don't believe that, but the world is changing, the climate is changing, and the projected areas where one can grow cocoa and coffee are being reduced and reduced. So we have these two curves, right? One is the developing world is eating a lot more chocolate, drinking a lot more coffee. You see this with you know huge explosions of everything from Tim Hortons to Starbucks to Luckin Coffee in China. Etc. So we see this huge demand increase. And then when you look at the supply projections, you're like, oh, God, this is both of these things can't exist in the same world. At some point, they intersect, right? Yeah, at some point, they intersect. And, you know, Hershey's announced this year that they might not have enough chocolate for Halloween, right? You know, like that intersection point is a lot sooner than a lot of people think. And so initially, it was really like, let's just work on this. And as we got kind of further and further along, I think both of us were really just like, holy shit, you know, like, we can do this. And it was went from a really interesting thought experiment to this is really could be a really valuable business. And then, you know, Alec Lee, I think, founder and CEO of Endless West has been an awesome mentor to both of us and, you know, helped us. He'd done the venture piece, right? And raising money and starting companies, et cetera. And really, you know, our cap table looks very similar to the Endless West cap table, right? We have a lot of same investors, et cetera. And so he kind of propelled it from like, a, this is a fun thought experiment to like, let's change the world of food. And that relationship piece, we talk about it on our podcast a lot. Like having a champion is so huge, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think like if I look at the important things in my life, most of it's who luck, right? Like, you know, the people you meet in weird ways who end up being really important personally, professionally, et cetera. And it's just like the odds of meeting and clicking is just like couldn't be more formative to life, definitely professionally, but, you know, across the board. 
So you started with peanut butter. Tell us a little bit about why you chose peanut butter. The peanut butter seems like a misfit if you think about our climate change inspiration here, but Voyage Foods really wants to be a solution maker in the food space. And there is a really large issue with kids in the United States, most paramountly, being allergic to peanuts and having, you know, quite severe anaphylaxis reactions in schools and other public locations. And it's really, you know, being from manufacturing and and consulting, a lot of larger food companies are also grappling with the peanut sensitivity. So, you know, allergen cleanouts in between lines and, and understanding peanut is a very popular flavor profile in America. And being able to deliver on something that tastes just like peanuts doesn't really exist. So we had tackled the peanut butter product first because in some ways it's, you know, an easier story to tell, a little less doom and gloom. When did you guys launch Voyage Foods? The company was technically founded February 1st of 2021. So you started in 2021 at the beginning of that year, and soon you guys are going to be in Walmart stores with your peanut butter product, that seems to me really quick. Tell us a little bit about what were the big bottlenecks in getting to this place? Yeah, I think at the core, you know, if you look at the discrepancy between a lot of the food tech industry and what we're doing is look at food tech companies in America and identify how many founders have ever been in a food plant before they started their company, right? You know, who'd ever been in research and development, who'd ever built out manufacturing facilities, you know, that list gets real, real small, real fast. And when we were starting out, you know, I think our entire investor network looked at, you know, the kind of timelines of facility build out, et cetera, that Kelsey and I had put together. And call this crazy, right? They're like, there's no way you'll be able to build a facility, put equipment in it and get it working in a year. And I think, you know, on the bottleneck side, I hate to say this because it's a broken record or whatever idiom, right? But a lot of the issues really were just in supply chain. Also slowed us down a lot. But I think those weren't real huge bottlenecks because, you know, Kelsey just done an incredible job at designing a facility working with vendors and being really pragmatism, something we talk a lot about at Voyage Foods, right? You know, we want to make better products for a better future. And the only way to do that is, right, to make things that are cost-effective, accessible, scalable. And that pragmatism, I think, was, you know, an exemplary example of that is really how we built this manufacturing facility. We didn't have enough money to buy the things we needed to buy. We didn't have time to buy the things we needed to buy. And, you know, I think Kelsey working with all of our vendors was like, oh, you don't have this equipment. It'll be 18 months to buy it. But you have, do you have any showpiece equipment that you brought at the trade shows that you can give us for a discount and ship to us today? Right. You know, like <laughs> what used stuff do you have that's just sitting in your facility that you don't know about? And I think a lot of the things that would have been really big hurdles to getting up and running so quickly was really just like, relationship building of Kelsey and our vendors and turning them from vendors into partners. And Kelsey, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking back when you were in grad school or before you went to grad school and how you were thinking that one kind of white space area or one kind of blank space area that you wanted to grow was your ability to think outside the box, right? And and you had like done so well within the formal school system and everything. And how amazing that this is such a strength of yours now of truly like thinking 
in terms of innovation and problem solving out of the box, so to speak? Yeah, I think some of that came from at the manufacturing facility I started at after grad school. They had this like equipment graveyard and just stuff that never got used and they didn't even know it was in there. And so getting to know our vendors became a lot more comfortable sort of like asking them those questions. And they're like, oh, I don't know. That is a good question. And because during the pandemic, when we were first looking at this, there was slightly less investment. I think vendors had more time to sort of like look at those questions. And so, yeah, it's definitely something that helped us a lot. And I personally found it as a great growth experience as well. Great. And the fact that you have Walmart as a partner, I mean, there are companies that that would be the holy grail, right, of getting their product in a mass market store, a chain like that. How did that come about? And were you guys helped by all the relationships that you have within the ecosystem or the people who are part of your own company and investors, that ecosystem? So this is some other hulak. The lead category buyer for our category at Walmart sent a cold email to hello at Voyage Foods. I, the naive Adam that I am, I was like, this must be spam, right? There's no way this is real. There's no way the lead category buyer at Walmart is like, we want to bring you into every Walmart in the country. And I was totally wrong. But yeah, they'd read article in a niche publication that included us and got really excited about our offerings, love the products, et cetera. But yeah, it definitely wasn't. We have an incredible investor base that are wildly supportive and hugely added value. But this wasn't one of those things where we call one of our fancy <laughs> investors and say, hey, can you, we can enter to Walmart. It was really just like a happenstance luck. The right person saw the right thing and then contacted us cold. That is an incredible story. <laughs> wow. It shows the value of PR. That article didn't come through a PR agency, but it does show the incredible value of getting your brand out there in publication. We've also had random investors reach out like that who people who'd written very large checks to us who kept messaging me on LinkedIn. And I was like, this can't be a real firm. This can't be a real firm. This can't be a real firm. <laughs> and then like, you know, eight months later, we have a few million dollar check from them. It's just so funny how the world works. And I think we're all a little dubious in this world where people are constantly trying to connect with everyone on LinkedIn and sell everyone things. But yeah, definitely happenstance is real. Tell us a little bit about what you're thinking of next. I mean, right now, the priority is reaching scale with the peanut butter. Are you thinking in terms of then, as you mentioned, some of these new product categories, expansion there or just more geographic and store expansion with the peanut butter or both? Yeah, so foundationally, you know, we're not a retail CPG company. The power of Voyage Foods in the truest of sense is we want to empower food manufacturers at every scale to make better food for a better future and make food that's accessible for everyone forever. And I think those are some of the, the through lines between coffee, chocolate, and peanut butter. If we're thinking about accessibility for everyone forever, right? If 80% of coffee species are you know, thought to be extinct at risk of extinction for the next 30 years by 2050, and the growing areas of cocoa are supposed to be reduced by you know, double-digit percentage numbers, right? You know, that's an accessibility issue, right? If we're looking at how do we track allergens in America and look at growth of peanut, nut, and other allergens in America, you know, that's an accessibility issue. We really want to empower other manufacturers. We will be launching our cacao-free chocolate and coffee-free coffee 
in the next 12 months, you will see geographic expansion also, and you'll start to see uh, Voyage Foods pop up more in food service. Let's think airlines, let's think school systems, let's think breakfast buffets at hotels. But you also see kind of the new products start to come out of our little lock and key box in West Oakland. Is that vision or future vision of not really being direct to consumer, sell through retail, does that present itself as you're an ingredient, you're selling ingredients to food manufacturers or are you selling, are you licensing the technology? This is how you make the thing and they make it themselves. Like, how do you envision that? Yeah, we'll always be the manufacturer. When you look at kind of our core technology set, one of the things I am personally most excited about, and I think Kelsey is also, is really our process defines the final product, not our inputs. You know, we talk a lot about decoupling food from its source material. And the beautiful thing is, you know, our cacao-free chocolates made out of wheat streams from wine manufacturing, which is funny because we were in a wine-free company before, <laughs> and some oil manufacturing. But, you know, that's what we're producing it from, but we could produce it from all sorts of different byproducts, et cetera. And because that process is so important for that final product, it's something that we want to always keep internally. But yeah, I think a branded ingredient company is definitely a way to phrase it. I think for us, it feels a little more powerful to say solution provider. But I think, you know, you see that across the, the gamut of a lot of equipment companies are now saying they're solution providers, they're equipment companies, right? We might be putting ourselves on a pedestal, but I think we really are a solution provider in a lot of ways. I have a specific question about making the products in the first place. So with each of those categories, for instance, let's take chocolate. There are so many different types of chocolates. You can go the Hershey route or go more refined like French or Belgian chocolate. Do you guys for all of those product categories have a target flavor profile in mind and try to meet that target? How does that work? Yeah, so there's two answers to that. And Kelsey can elaborate. But the first answer is we're not making luxury foods for rich people. That's a foundational part of what we're doing. And so we want to make sure that, you know, the products we're making the most of are things, commodity mass, the things that exist in ubiquity. So what do you think those market leaders are, right? In England, it's definitely Cadbury chocolate. In America, let's call it Hershey's, right? For coffee in America, that Starbucks cold brew in a PET bottle, if that's the highest seller. That's what we're going after. But the beautiful thing about the team that Kelsey's built and the research organization that Kelsey's built is really, we don't actually have to make that decision. It's we can tailor our process and our formulas to exhibit any type of flavor profile of coffee, to exhibit, you know, the range of profiles of chocolate. And we're really not producing one thing. When you start seeing Powered by Voyage Foods on products across the gamut in a grocery store and across category in the grocery store, you know, those will be fundamentally different flavor profiles, experiences. So it's like the Intel chip, right? And various products that are all different from each other. Exactly. And so when you're looking at the future a few years from now, five, 10 years from now, do you want then the Starbucks and the Dunkin' Donuts and the Godiva's and all of those and Hershey's products to be powered by Voyage Foods? Is that the dream of realizing your mission? Yeah, I think like if we look at coffee, we look at chocolate, right? You know, for every liter of coffee we replace, for every, you know, bar of chocolate we replace, you know, we're helping the environment. We're providing a better future for the world. I think Kelsey and I's goal of, you know, in five years, we walk through a grocery store, we might have one or two products under the Voyage banner, but, you know, 
per aisle in the bar aisle, you'll see, you know, bar something with powered by Voyage Foods chocolate chips, another bar with powered by Voyage, but our peanut butter. In the beverage section, you'll see stuff with coffee. In the ice cream section, you might see things with coffee. But I think that ubiquity of how can we empower food companies across the gamut to do better is definitely what we're looking for. There is a lightning round. It's very intense. It's high pressure. I'm going to ask you questions. You get one word answers and one word answers only. Brett, I do not do well with pressure. <laughs> <laughs> this does not require formal education of any kind. You know, we'll judge you on your answers. We'll decide if you were right or wrong. Some of them will go to both of you. Some of them will be uh, pointed at one of the two of you. Just let it flow. We'll start with a really easy one that both of you can answer. What's your favorite food to cook? Steak tartare. I mean... Not really cooking it, but you're preparing it. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> you know, we're starting out cold. Kelsey, what about you? <laughs> For me, my favorite thing to cook is definitely pasta. I think nothing makes me happier than a bowl of pasta. All right. Well, so let's just go ahead and take a step back here. And on the first question, Adam answered with something that you don't actually cook. It's raw. And Kelsey used like 100 words in your answer. So both of you have already failed the lightning round so far. Let's see if we can do better. All right. Who's a better cook? Adam. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> nice agreement. Perfect. And one word. You guys did great that time. Kelsey, Adam said that you eat chocolate chip cookies pretty much every day. What does he eat pretty much every day? Watered down cold brew coffee. <laughs> Watered down cold brew coffee. Adam, do you have a favorite brand or do you make it yourself? Duncan. All right, Adam, earlier in the interview, you said that you fundamentally have no respect for the educational system. What else don't you have any respect for? <laughs> figure out how spicy to be. <laughs> <laughs> a lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, you could say me, like you, Brett. I fundamentally have no respect for you. I can't answer that honestly on a podcast. So I'm, I'm just going to avoid it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that might be our first no answer in the lightning rounds ever, actually. I think that's the first time we haven't had an answer for something. That's right. We'll go with it. Kelsey, what's better, Minnesota or the Bay Area? I'm going to have to say Minnesota. Yeah, I agree. Completely agree. For each of you, what's your favorite item to pair with peanut butter? For me, it's apples. Chocolate. Reese's is a perfect food. That's a good answer. What ingredient should the food system be most worried about the future of? Coffee. For me, chocolate. When working on new products, what's your favorite ingredient to work with? Sugar. <laughs> it's pretty ubiquitous. <laughs> Performs well, always. <laughs> Adam, do you have one? No. <laughs> no favorites. All right. Last well, one. I guess I, it totally depends on application, what you're working on, right? If you had to just pick one, one ingredient to work with, what's your favorite one to get started with? What's your favorite base ingredient? As a food scientist, I don't uh, agree with the question. <laughs> <laughs> There's that counterculture chip on his shoulder coming out right then and there. Yeah. Love it. Brett, you're asking terrible questions. All right. Last one. What is at the end of a rainbow? Joy and ecstasy. <laughs> I don't know if I can live up to that answer as my answer. I was going to say chocolate. Full Stack Food is brought to you by the Techstars Farm to Fork Accelerator. Techstars Farm to Fork is a mentorship-driven accelerator program working with the startups that are focused on the food value chain from on-farm to supply chain, manufacturing, all the way to the future of food retail. We provide mentorship, capital, 
and a network that can help take your startup from where you are today and accelerate it to its next level. If you're an early stage tech founder that has applications into the food system, reach out today to learn more about our program. Here's this week's Startup Corner. Today I'm here with Megan Groves, the CEO and co-founder of Population. Megan, welcome. What's the problem that you guys are solving at Population? Population is stopping the spread of infectious diseases through a technology that automates pathogen mitigation. So we kill viruses and bacteria in the air and on surfaces in real time and provide a data and analytics layer to help businesses better manage risk. How does that apply into the food space? Yeah, so fundamentally, this is about human health. And you can't really talk about human health without talking about food. And you can't really talk about food without talking about climate. So I love that this podcast is called Fold Sack Food because these problems I just described truly are all interconnected. And when we think about solving them, we need to really take a full stack approach using technology. So that's what population is doing. We're making our physical environments safer and healthier, starting with the places where food is produced, packaged, and served. How are you solving this problem? Population has a solution for businesses that helps them put pathogen mitigation on autopilot and report on the metrics that matter. So at the core of our solution is something called FAR-UVC. It's 222 nanometer light wave that's safe to be used in occupied spaces, so the places where we work, eat, and socialize without causing any harm. It works in real time on the viruses, bacteria, fungi, and other pathogens that can persist in our food, in our water, in our air, and it can essentially stop them in their tracks. What's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? So we're building a brand that's synonymous with health and safety in food. And so our vision is that we're in every quick service restaurant, every ghost kitchen, every supermarket, every cafeteria, every place along the food chain from the places in which it's produced to the places that it's sold and consumed. Today, I'm here with Chad, CEO of New Tree Fruit. Chad, thanks for joining. What's the problem that you guys are solving? The problem we're solving is the ability to allow everyone to eat fruit and vegetables without the thawn of the sugars that go along with them. How are you doing it? We go to the farms, we buy harvested fruit, we squeeze it, we take the sugar out, and then we package it in, you know, five-gallon pails or 55-gallon drums. The process that we actually have deployed after many years of study is a culturing method. So the culturing okay. method is removing all the fructose and the glucose from the juice without changing the nutritional complement of the, the minerals, the vitamins, the polyphenols, or antioxidants. We have a turnkey facility in Traverse City, Michigan. Does it taste good still? It does. So what's the big vision here? How are you going to take over the world? I started with the investment because I had two grandparents that in their 90s, they became diabetic, and the doctor told them they couldn't drink fruit juice anymore. And uh, that was our first investment, my wife and I, into the company. I was doing some numbers a while back just from getting ready for an investor meeting, and they asked me how big the market was. And I said, well, it's about $200 billion is the marketplace. And I said, we just want to become the largest company to take all the sugars out of fruit. And it seemed that simple. So I think if, I guess, using the phrase, as you said, taking over the world, I guess it'll be one gallon at a time. So going back to the original question, can you make good chocolate without cocoa and coffee without beans? I hope so. That's my answer. I hope so. I hope we can. I do think that there's a need for it. I think we'll figure a way to do it out. I mean, we're literally growing beef and chicken and pork in labs right now. And if we can do that, we can probably figure out a way to make coffee and cocoa in a non-traditional way. 
And guys, that brings us to the end of season two. Can you believe it? This is a super, super fun season. Some amazing guests. Cannabis to economics and markets and what else do we do? Hot dogs. Hot dogs. Grimaces. <laughs> Imperfect foods. That was our opener. Long feels like forever ago when we talked to Ben. What an awesome, awesome conversation that was. And Season Health, another great company doing so much for both health tech and food tech. Great season, guys. Have a good one. Full Stack Food is produced by Aditi Roy Media.